Now today I'm preaching from my favorite passage. Yep, that's what I said. And I began with my favorite story that maybe you've heard, maybe you haven't. If you've read Billy Graham's autobiography, you ought to. Or as my daddy used to say, you ought to. And because it's one of the greatest books. Now it's about a thousand pages. Some of you, that would take you a year and a half. But it's entitled appropriately, Just As I Am. What a great book. Uh, You ought to read it. It's a must read. But in that book, he tells of a time when he met uh, then-candidate John Fitzgerald. Excuse me, he was president-elect John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Between the election and the inauguration, he met Kennedy for the first time. And uh, Kennedy was uh, just wearing him out with questions about the Lord. And he said, I spent the better part of an hour with John F. Kennedy. And he said, Kennedy asked particularly questions about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, Mr. Graham, my church, the Roman Catholic Church, I never hear about this. Uh, Tell me what you believe about the second coming. He said, I spent a long time telling him why Jesus came the first time and why Jesus would be coming the second time and what would happen in relation to that. So... He said it was just, he could not get enough. He just wanted to hear and wanted to hear. But then he said, the next time I saw John F. Kennedy was in another occasion, just a few years later, at the National Prayer Breakfast. Now, Dale and I got to go once or twice. I've been once or twice, maybe without her, but it's a big deal in Washington, D.C. The president always comes, and it's a veritable who's who of whatever. And uh, so Billy Graham said that year I was asked to lead it. Now that's a big deal. He said, but the problem was I had the flu. I felt terrible. Aches, pains, chills, fever, the whole thing. But because leading the National Prayer Breakfast was such a big deal, he said, I thought I can't, I just can't not do it. I got to make this happen. So he said, I just got up and I did it. And I I know I didn't do good, but he said, I just did it. And he said, as I'm walking away from the breakfast, I'm walking out to my car. I find myself walking by then President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And he looked at me with the saddest face and he said, Mr. Graham, I need a favor from you. Now, usually when the President of the United States asks you for a favor, you say, yes, sir. He said, what is it, Mr. President? He said, I need to talk to you. Would you please come back to the White House with me and spend some time with me today, please? He said, Mr. President, I don't feel good. Mr. President, I think I have the flu. I have aches, pains, chills, fever. I don't want you to catch what I have. Could we talk some other time, Mr. President? With an understanding and sad look, he said, yeah, okay, okay, we'll... We'll talk some other time, Mr. Graham. You get you some rest. Well, Billy Graham writes in his book, Just As I Am, three weeks later, an assassin's bullet cut short the life of that young president. Most of you remember, if you're old enough, you remember where you were when that happened. Like you remember where you were on 9-11. It's one of those singular days where you remember what hap- where you were when it happened. Billy Graham writes in his autobiography, I will never forgive myself for not talking to him. 
I should have forced myself to go talk to that young president. Maybe something I could have said could have changed his life for all eternity. But I missed it. And I will never, and he wrote, he was of course alive when he wrote that. He said, I will, to the day I die, and he just died not too long ago. Dale and I got to go to the funeral. That was quite a funeral. Till the day I die, I'll regret that I did not go talk to that young president. And then Billy Graham ends with a statement that I pulled out, I've used, it haunts me. It's a phrase that is poignant at best. He said, for him and me that day, it became an irrecoverable moment. That's the title of the message today, an irrecoverable moment. Moment, a moment that cannot be repeated. And I do believe those irrecoverable moments come in the lives of countries, families. Maybe you were raised in a family where something happened, changed your family forever. Some of you have been in churches, something happened in a church and it changed that church forever. And everybody wishes, oh, I wish we could get it back the way it was. But you can't get it back. Families, individuals go through irrecoverable moments. I believe every man, woman, boy, and girl has irrecoverable moments in their lives. A time when God is doing something and God is working. And I'm not sure those moments are promised to come again and again and again. There are times we lose the opportunity and the irrecoverable moment comes and it goes. But in the life of every man, woman, boy, and girl comes those irrecoverable moments. Well, I believe we're going to read this morning in my favorite passage where a woman had one of those irrecoverable moments. And I want you to turn with me to John chapter 4. We'll read, it's, it's a lengthy passage, but it's well worth the read. John chapter 4, and as Kevin said, if you got a smartphone, you can look that up. Just don't push the sound button on it, please. But uh, we're going to see a woman who had an irrecoverable moment with the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 4. Now, technically, my passage begins at verse 7, but we'll begin at verse 1 because I always like, I want to cover the entirety of the gospel of John. It says, therefore... When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So he's up north. Go ahead and put that, uh, Ashley, if you would, put the map up there. I'll show you maps. You can't see them. You don't care, but I care. I like maps. And just bear with me. That's just the way it is. So he, he's this, we've already seen this continuing argument with the disciples of John. Well, he's baptizing more than you are, but Jesus didn't actually baptize. I just baptized Paul, but his disciples baptized people, and he's getting very popular. Well, he needed to go to Galilee, and just remember, it's up there. It says Galilee at the top left corner of the screen. If you've got one of your maps in the back of your Bible, you can see it. It's easy. The Sea of Galilee, the area around it is called Galilee. Some of you have been there with me to Galilee. It's a freshwater lake. Eight and one half miles wide, eleven and one half miles long. 
It is 600 feet below sea level in a rift called the Jordan Valley Rift that goes all the way from Syria all the way to Kenya. Yep, it is a tectonic plate rift that goes all the way down that has nothing to do with the scripture, has nothing to do with anything. I don't know why it just comes out of me. But right smack dab in the middle, as we say, is Samaria. And to the bottom, you see that body of water down to the the bottom of the screen, it says something asphaltitus. Asphaltitus. Why would a name be called the Asphalt Lake? Because somewhere around there, there were tar and asphalt pits. So if you've ever read that there's oil in Israel, there was oil in Israel and there still is if they just find it. But there is the area of Judea on the left, Perea on the right, but right between Judea and Galilee is the area called Samaria. All right? He need, he, he needs, he's gone to Galilee, but verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. We'll come back to that in a moment. Pay attention. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near a plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. He's tuckered out, like some of you from yesterday's work day. It was about the sixth hour, so it's 6 p.m. That's what that means. Afternoon's the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now look at this. His disciples had gone away into town to buy groceries. says to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask of me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, now look at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you what kind of water? Say it out loud. Living water. The woman said to him, sir, you you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where, Where are you going to get this living water? Now, if you're not already picking up on this, it's one of the greatest conversations ever recorded. I like to fancify it and say it's scintillating repartee. And it is. It's just one of the greatest interchanges between two humans you're ever going to see. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw with the well deep where you're going to get it. She says, are you greater than our forefather Jacob who gave us this well and who drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him, what? A spring of water, a fountain of water, sprinkling up, springing up into what? Everlasting or eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor have to keep coming back here. And Jesus then changes the whole conversation. Look at verse 16. He said, go call your husband. Go call your husband and come back here. Uh Uh-oh. 
The woman answered and said, well, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right. You've well said you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You Jews claim the place we must in Jerusalem, the place we, where we ought to worship. The woman said, Jesus said to her, woman, look at verse 21. Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we worship for salvation. We know what we worship. Salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is. Now look at this. The fa- True worshipers will worship the Father. Pebble Creek, this is what I want to happen today. True worshipers will worship the Father. How? In spirit and in truth. Now, did you know this, Pebble Creek? The Father is seeking such worshipers. I find that amazing. He is seeking such worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman said in verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming and when, who is called the Christ, and when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I am He. And then look at 27 as we conclude this passage. At this point, His disciples came. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. We'll come back to that. But none dared ask, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? The woman then left her water pot and went in water pot and then went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. We'll stop there. Friends, this is truly one of the greatest passages ever. Because it tells us three very important things. First of all, listen. Salvation has implications for the past. And I'm glad. This woman is confronted by Christ in this situation there at the well of Sikar. And she finds out he knows everything there is to know about me. He knows it all. You see, I think maybe others had talked to her about her past before. And probably did so with a kind of a judgmental spirit. But Jesus talks about her past, and yet she's drawn to him and not repulsed by him. That's a lesson for us there. But in front of Christ, all the pretenses, all of the excuses, all of the outward appearances, they were all invisible to him. He could see straight through all of it. Now, what do we do? When we feel the Lord is speaking to us and we know He sees straight through, I'm afraid we utilize, I know I do, and most of the people I've ever known utilize an amazing array of avoidance techniques. Here are some of them. Sometimes when God is working on us, we rely on a substitute righteousness. We rely on a substitute righteousness. Stop right there just for a second. Here's what we often do. Wait a minute. God, leave me alone. I'm just, I'm just doing what the culture tells me to do. I'm as good, anybody, as good as anybody else in the culture. 
God, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I go to church every once in a while. Even on Easter, I dress up. Okay, God, it, that, it, does that make you happy? I mean, I'm doing some things that cultural Christianity tells me I'm supposed to do. And I believe God just ro- rolls his eyes and says, I don't care about cultural Christianity. In fact, I hate it. But sometimes we go even further. We utilize another avoidance technique. I call it rationalization and comparison. We rationalize and we compare. Now, wait a minute, Lord. I know what you want from me. I know I I get it. I know you see inside of me. But wait a minute, God. I'm just as good as that other person up there at Pebble Creek Baptist Church. In fact, I think I'm a little better than most of them. God, I'm just as good as anybody else. Why are you asking all this from me? I I think I'm just a good person. Ask anybody at school. Ask anybody in most churches. What does it take to get to heaven? They will say, you just need to be a good person. How good? Better than the rest of them. So we utilize this silly avoidance technique and we rationalize who we are and compare ourselves to others and I believe God shakes his head and says I'm not comparing you to anybody else I'm comparing you to my son whoa but third what do most of us do we avoid God leave me alone I like me like I am God just rolls his eyes again and says, I don't like you like you are. I want more of you. I want all of you. This woman realized he knows me. All the outward pretenses, excuses, they're all invisible to this man. I've never met a man like this. He compelled her to see herself as she really was. I don't like that. I I don't like it when God puts a mirror up to me and says, look who you really are, Frank. I, I don't like that. Do you? I don't. But he does that to us because he wants to forgive us of our past, but he wants us to be honest about it too. Salvation has implications for the past. Quickly, it has implications for the present. As well, Look at verses 25 and 26. It's it's one of the most fascinating uh, interchanges that I've ever, ever, ever seen. The Samaritan woman is overwhelmed by Christ's ability to see into her heart and to look unhindered into her heart. He saw in her heart an emptiness. He saw in her heart a a real lack, a void, a God-sized vacuum. I heard of a little girl that came home from service one time and said to her mama, how's that preacher know what goes on in our house? (laughs) Well, because the Holy Spirit sometimes reveals, and you know, God knows, even if the preacher doesn't know, he knows what's going on in your house and in your heart. He knows. And so we see here him speaking to the depths of her human heart, and she enters into a dialogue with the Son of God. Now look back. Jesus is in Galilee. He needs to go down. We saw to, he has to go through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to go through Samaria if he was going to follow Jewish tradition. Now, you remember they were just right in line. 
Galilee, Samaria, Judea. But a good Jew in Jesus' day did not walk through Samaria, ever. They literally would, can, actually, can you get that map back up there? I hate to do that to you, honey child, but do it anyway. Uh, what they would do, I don't know if you can see this, but they would literally cross over the Jordan River, come down through what is modern-day Jordan, and then come back over to Judea. And if they were going south to north, they would do the same thing. Up, they would go over, up, there was a highway called the King's Highway. And then they'd come back over. Why? Well, they didn't want to go through Samaria, because why? There were Samaritan people there. And they didn't like Samaritan people. It was what we call a mutual antipathy. They didn't like the Jews either. And it goes back to 727 B.C., and I'm not going to get into all that, but it goes back to the time after the Assyrian invasion. Some people are left behind. Some of those people intermarried with the Canaanites, and those kind of mixed folk were left over, and they became a part of what became known as the Samaritans. And so the Jews didn't like them, felt they had betrayed the faith, and the Samaritans didn't like them either. And they had developed their own belief system, had their own belief in their own Messiah. They worshipped in a place called Mount Gerizim. It's right there in the middle of the screen. They had a temple. They worshipped. They had their own place. And so this woman goes to get water in Sychar or Sikar. It's six o'clock in the evening. And here's this man sitting there. He's tuckered out. He's tired, the Bible says. His disciples went into town to buy groceries. He's sitting by the well, Jacob's well, it's called. So what happens? <laughs> he said, give me a drink, please. You know, he didn't have a water pot. She did. Would you please give me a, a drink of water? Does that sound like an unusual request? Well, not in our culture, not in our day. If you're sitting by water and you got the water, somebody wants water, you give them water. Wait a minute, you'd have to give them a bottle of water, wouldn't you? Because you wouldn't drink out of the same cup as someone else, would you? Oh, my goodness, how far we have come. This, if you want to know how old I am, I told you I was in my late 40s. I told you that last week. So when I was at my grandma Paige's house, they still had an open well. And you got water by pulling the water bucket up by a crank. And you got the water out in the bucket, and then everybody drank out of the same. It was called a dipper, dipper. And you got it out, you drank, you handed it to whoever was around you, and we all drank. None of us died of anything. None of us caught anything, I, I, you know. But anyway, so you'd have to ask for a bottle of water. Well, the problem was Jesus was a man. You say, well, what's the problem with that? In first century Palestine, it was a big issue. Men didn't talk to women, and women didn't talk to men publicly. In fact, it is even said in one Jewish tractate, let not a man speak to a woman, no, not even to his own wife. Women were treated that poorly. So here's Jesus. He just speaks to her. Would you give me a drink? She is offended because 
she's a Samaritan woman, he's a Jewish man. And so we'll come to this in just a moment, but this is one of the greatest dialogues of cross-cultural evangelism you'll ever, ever, ever see. I mean, he knows who she is. He said, would you please give me a drink? Disciples had gone away. She says in verse 9, excuse me? Really? You, You are a Jewish man, I'm a Samaritan woman. Now, first of all, isn't that what we call stating the obvious? She can tell by his dress, his demeanor, he is a Jewish man. Well, he knows she's a Samaritan woman. Why? Because she's a woman in there in Samaria. Not hard to figure out, right? But before we pick on her too much, how many of us spend most of our time dealing with serious, excuse me, silly stuff that doesn't matter? I get so tired of people dealing and spending energy and time over things that do not matter at all. So you're a person of a different race. Well, so what? So you're a different gender. So what? Let's see what happens here. And you'll notice in the ensuing discussion, Jesus ignores her silly, obvious stating of ethnic and racial difference. He doesn't even discuss it. He moves right on past, and that's what we ought to be doing in churches, my friends, moving past silly discussions and dealing with what really matters. Somebody say amen. Amen. So Jesus, uh, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus said, honey child. Okay, he didn't really say that. But he said, if you had any idea who you were talking to, she did not. And if you had any idea about the gift of God, she did not she would have been blown away. So salvation has implications for the present. Now look at this here. Jesus starts talking to her about living water. He starts talking to her about living water. He said, listen, if you knew what it was, I'd give it, he said, if you knew who it was, I would give you living water. She said, give it to me. He said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. The well water, but the water I give you, if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. I mean, it's amazing. He starts talking about living water. He's referring to a relationship with him. He's talking about true relationship with the one that when you come to Christ and you are truly saved, guess what? A spring of water, eternal life comes up inside of you and it's eternal. It does not go away. If you are truly saved, listen to me, you are truly saved forever. I mean, he's talking about amazing stuff. She said, please give it to me. But then he changes the whole conversation. He said, go call your husband and come back. Why in the world did he do that? Again, he wants her to know I know who you are. And I see the great lack in you. I see the vacuum in you. I see the need. You've tried to fill it in other ways. She said, husband? Oh, wait a minute. I don't have a husband. Well, uh, yeah, well, kind of, sort of. Yeah, you're right, kind of, sort of, because you've had a lot of them, and the man you're now with is not your husband. It's amazing. 
He knew exactly what was going on in her life. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So you truly spoke. And then verse 19, she says kind of obviously, well, yeah, you're a prophet. But then she tries to do what we often try to do. We try to avoid, okay, let's talk about something else, Lord. So let's talk about worship. It's always an easy discussion. We can argue about worship. And you'll leave me alone about all this other personal stuff, Jesus. <laughs> Here she is engaging in a dialogue with the Son of God. She doesn't know it yet. She just came to get some water. And this strange man is asking her for water. She had no idea she is talking to the Messiah. She said, now you Jews claim we're supposed to go down to worship in Jerusalem. We have our own place up here in Mount Gerizim. And he said, oh honey child, time out, time out. And then he really gets to the heart of the matter. Because you see, it's a matter of the heart, is the heart of the matter. He said, listen, you think it really matters where you worship? That's not the issue. The issue is not where you worship, it is who you worship and how you worship Him. And so this woman's present lack of faith, this woman's present lack of relationship, this woman's present void, God-sized vacuum is made very evident. And she starts talking about worship, where you're supposed to worship. You know, we still argue in our churches today about worship. We really do. I hear it all the time. I saw an article a week or two ago that worship wars have subsided somewhat. Moses, I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. People still argue in churches about worship. But to one, you know what they're arguing about? They're working, arguing about worship style. I got a news flash for you. It's okay to have your own opinion about worship style. It is okay. Some of you like Gaither. Some of you like contemporary music. Some of you like classical music. Some of you don't know what you like. Some of you like gospel music. Some of you, I don't know what you... We all have opinions, and I know what I like, and I know I'm right. <laughs> okay, I'm just joking. But my friends, listen to me. It's okay to have your opinion about worship style, but God doesn't care about your worship preference. He doesn't care because it does not matter what style you like. What matters is who you worship and how you worship Him. Now listen to me. You can tell me your opinion, and I'm glad to hear it most times. And it's okay to have your... It really is. But all, what I really want to know is who are you worshiping and how are you worshiping Him. He said to this woman, Oh, please know, it doesn't really matter where you worship, but are you worshiping the Father? And are you worshiping Him spiritually and honestly? In spirit and in truth? Is that what you're really doing? Because if you're doing that, it doesn't matter whether you're in Gerizim or Jerusalem or out on the side of a hill somewhere. What matters is who you worship and how you worship Him. So this woman realizes, this man knows me. He senses and knows what's inside of me, and he knows what's not inside of me.
And now he knows, she knows he's getting close. He, he's really started, he's gone, he stopped preaching and now he's meddling. And she says, I think it's verse 25, isn't it? She says to him, verse 25, Now I know the Messiah is coming. And when he does, he will explain all of this to us. The Samaritans had their own belief in their own Messiah. Now I know there's a Messiah coming. And when he does, he's going to clear all this up. Now there are liberal theologians in this country and in other countries who will tell you that Jesus Christ never claimed to be the Messiah. That is a lie. That is false. That is heresy. Because in the next verse, Jesus said, Honey, it's me. It's me. I who stand before you, I am He. This woman just came to get a jug of water. And here she is talking to the Messiah, the Son of God. Now he identifies himself as the one. And he has come. Amazing, amazing, amazing. She realizes for the first time in her life what living water is. She realizes for the first time in her life what real worship is of a real living God. She realizes for the first time where she's missed out on so much. And I believe salvation came to that woman. It doesn't tell us everything, but I believe that day she gave her life to Christ. I mean, she met the Savior. And he says, don't, want you, don't you want this living water? Don't you want to worship the true God in honesty and, and spiritually and in honesty? And I believe she came to faith in Christ. I do. I really do. But quickly and last, it has implications and applications for the future. So the scripture breaks in at this point and says the disciples come back from their grocery run. And they see him talking with this woman. Now remember, he's not supposed to be talking to a woman. He's not even supposed to be going through Samaria. But oh, by the way, Jesus always lived by the heart of God, not by the traditions of men. You hear me? He lived by the heart of God, not by the traditions of men. His disciples had already learned that. So, <laughs> they said, none dare. He's talking to a woman. But none said, what do you seek or why do you talk to her? They'd already learned, leave him alone. He lives by the heart of God, not by the traditions of man. You see, if it had been up to the disciples, they'd have never gone through Samaria. But Jesus had a way of irritating them. I mean, he really did. Now, my wife says my primary spiritual gift is irritation, and it, that may be true. Jesus liked to irritate people. You know, he, he loved to say to Jews, let me tell you about the parable of the good Samaritan. Excuse me? Good what? Let me tell you about the parable of the good Samaritan. Oh, by the way, when they wanted, Jews wanted to criticize Jesus, they called him a Samaritan. It was a curse phrase. He told a story one time about ten lepers that were healed, remember? And one came back and thanked him, and that one was a... His disciples would say, Ove, 
Jesus, really? And now he makes them come through, straight through Samaria. He didn't go around, he goes straight through. Here he's talking to this woman. But none dared ask, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water part, what happens? She goes back into the village. And she talks to the men. One writer said, the men in town all knew her. She had a bad reputation, didn't she? She had a bad reputation. So the first instinct of this Samaritan woman is to do what? Is to share her discovery. Is to let people know who she's found. She was compelled to share in verses 28 through 30. She's compelled to share. Now just listen to me, my last phrase, and that's simply this. This woman who had been the talk of the town now gets the town to talk about Jesus. I love that. And we'll come to it later. But on down later, the Bible says, the whole town came out to see him. And many believed. He made the disciples stay there a couple more days, by the way. Probably drove them crazy. But what happened? Many believed in him. So this woman's, the two great imperatives in Christian life, my friends, to find Jesus and to share Jesus. And she found him and she starts sharing him. Come see a man. Come see a man. And listen to me, Pebble Creek, that's all I ask of you is that you find him and that you share him. Have you found Christ like this woman did? Have you discovered living water like she did? Have you experienced a regeneration from inside? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? It's time to give your life to Him. To have a personal, irrecoverable moment with a Savior just like this woman did. And if you do know Him, who are you telling about Him? Who are you talking to about Him? She got the whole town to talk about Jesus. Can we at least get one person to talk about Christ? To talk to about Christ? Who are you sharing with? Who are you praying for? Who are you asking about their relationship with Christ? I've told this story so many times. We had a, we had a revival meeting in Fayetteville, North Carolina years ago. A guy named Freddie Gage was the evangelist. Wow, man. But people got saved. The first night of the revival, a little girl in our church named Gina, Dale knew her, her mama played the organ. She got saved. I mean, that little girl was so excited, she couldn't stand it. The next night of revival, I see Gina coming to the, to the service, and she brought about five of her little girlfriends with her. And she said, Dr. Page, I got saved last night. And I said, honey, I heard, and I'm so glad and proud of you. She said, all my friends are going to get saved tonight. And I looked at them and I thought, okay, I hope so. And all of them got saved except one. And I thought Gina was going to jump on her and beat her half to death. And I thought, I don't think that's the way you get the people to come to Christ, honey, but if it works, let me know. But what was the point of this? She found Christ. And she shared Christ. She found Christ. And she began to share about Christ. Who are you telling about the Lord Jesus? Who is in that circle of your influence that you can bring to a relationship with Christ? This woman had been a tribute to wrong living. And now she points people to the one who can bring about right living.
This woman who had been a moral failure points people to the only place where they can get true righteousness, the Lord Jesus. Pray with me, please. Father God, in Jesus' name, I come to you. And I ask, Lord God, that you would give us an irrecoverable moment today with your son, just as this woman at the well did. Oh God, she got everybody to talking about you. And Lord, that's what I want to happen from Pebble Creek Baptist. I want people to begin talking, not about Pebble Creek or Frank Page, but to start talking about Jesus. Oh Lord, please let that happen. Now speak to us individually, Father. Speak to us right where we are. And we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.